Good morning. What a joy to be with you and what a wonderful time praising the Lord. Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Would you stand if you can? Starting verse 2. Here's the word of the Lord. Look out! Beware of the dogs! Beware of the evildoers! Look out for those who mutilate the flesh! For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, thank the Lord for the buts in the Bible. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, Becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please be seated. Father, as we prayed earlier, we pray once again. We are beggars at Your table. We hunger for You. We love this time of the week because You are faithful and You speak to us. As a good shepherd, you feed us. So I pray that you would help me. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be working through me, in me. And I pray for this wonderful congregation. That their ears would be attentive. That their minds would be sharp. That we all would be examining everything here according to the Scriptures. In order that you may be glorified. Be with our brothers and sisters in the Salem area. Bless other churches here as they are gathering together to worship you. Build up your church. We pray that your kingdom would come today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In the Christian life, we often hear about Christians giving their testimony, right? We, in our church, we ask those who are aspiring Baptism or those who are aspiring membership to share their testimony with us. It's a vital part of life in the Christian community. But what is a Christian testimony? What is to give a testimony? We have a messed up idea nowadays, so it's important for us to think what is a biblical testimony? As we go to the words, the English word for testimony derives from the Latin, testimonium. And it's connected to the legal aspect related to evidence, witness. A witness gives a testimony. You're testifying about something. And you go through the Old Testament and a faithful witness is the one who has seen, has heard, he has experienced. And that's why he can testify. And the same thing moves to the New Testament. And as you go to the New Testament, the word for testifying, to give your testimony, becomes actually synonym with preaching the gospel. It's amazing. 
So you go especially through the book of Acts, and to testify, to give your testimony, is basically a declaration of the gospel. And of course, Jesus, according to Revelation, He is the faithful and true testimony, the witness. The word that we, in English, sometimes we talk about martyrs. So we have the voice of martyrs. What is a martyr? We talk about the one who died for the sake of Christ. Actually, the English word martyr is a transliteration from the Greek martus, that is, witness, or the one who gives a testimony. And it became used for the one who died for Christ's sake because as the church started to expand and the Roman Empire started pressuring Christians and they had to stand before the the governing authorities, and give their testimony and witness whether they follow Jesus or not. And those who would say, how can I deny my Savior? They would be put to death. Therefore, we start using that as the one who gives his testimony to the point of death. Basically, a Christian testimony is a legal declaration of first-hand knowledge and experience of what Jesus has done in that person's life through the gospel. What is a Christian testimony? But the personal experience of God. I, I have tasted. I have experienced His power. Therefore, as if I was in the courtroom, I can raise my hand and give a legal declaration. I can testify that this Jesus is real. This gospel is powerful. That's the testimony. The testimony is not primarily about us. And that's what we hear so much in our churches. Well, can you share your testimony? And it's all about the person. You never hear about Christ. And testimony, Christian testimony, is not about what you have seen in other people's lives. But in your own life, the power of Christ And every true believer has a true testimony to share, to tell others. Amen? And every true and faithful testimony has basically three parts. You have the life before Christ. That's called degeneration. When Christ saved you, regeneration or conversion. And then life in union with Christ. What we call sanctification, leading to glorification. So, every Christian testimony, you have these three parts. Life before Christ, when Christ showed up, and the life afterwards. And while the circumstances change, the time, the situations change, right? The Lord saved me when I was 19 years old. I was in Brazil. And that's very different from how the Lord saved David or Abby. So, circumstances, the location, the time will change, it will vary. But one thing doesn't vary. The means. It's always by the power of the gospel. It's when you hear the gospel. And the other thing that doesn't change is the power of the gospel in that person's life. Once you are saved, you will be changed. You will be transformed. These things don't change. So, sometimes I hear Christians saying, I have always been a Christian. Let's look at the Bible and say, is it possible for a person to have always been a Christian? I have always been a Christian. That's a statement that's in opposite to the clear teachings of the Scriptures. By nature, you're children of wrath. You need to be born again, Jesus says. You need regeneration. You need the change of heart. And how do you know the change of heart? By repenting and believing. So I understand. So that people say, I have always been a Christian. Alright, that's your experience. But that denies the truth of the Scriptures. Because according to the Scriptures, nobody's born as a child of the Father. We are born as child of wrath. Huh. Others say, I just don't know when I was saved. 
And then we need to think, okay, biblically speaking, what is the mark of regeneration? What is the mark of a change of heart? Repentance and faith, embracing Christ. So we need to trace to your life when was the, the, the first time that you truly said, I sin against my Savior. It doesn't matter if you're 4, 14, 40, 400 years old. There must be that time when I sin against my Lord. I sin against Him who saved me. And there was a, a change of life. Regeneration and justification is not a process. That's very important. Because sometimes people think that regeneration is a process. No, 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 no. Regeneration, justification is an act. A moment. There is a moment in time when your heart's changed. It's not like there was a process that God was regenerating your heart. That's unbiblical. It's not like there is a process where you are being justified before God. Oh, let me keep justifying Him little by little. No. Under the new covenant, there is no such thing as that. And what happens when a person is regenerated? He gets the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes at one time. God's not giving the Spirit little by little in order for you to be saved. It comes one time to dwell within you. So those things are important to keep in mind. When the gospel comes, it transforms you. There is no doubt about that. It doesn't matter how old and where you are, you will never be the same again. Amen? So if you say, I don't, I don't know, I was baptized when I was 13, and then my life, I just, a life of sin until I was 30, you are not saved there. You might have professed, but you cannot be in union with Christ and living a life with the devil and Satan himself. So don't trace where there was a profession or a baptism. Trace where there is a life of repentance. Whoosh. Yes, I professed when I was seven years old, and then my life was a mess. There was no fruit of the Spirit. There was no... Life marked by union with Christ. So that means that you are not saved there. But as soon as you say, oh, but when I was 23, there was a change. That's when you are saved. That's what the Bible says. As soon as your life is marked by that union with Christ, by loving holiness more than sinfulness, reflecting Christ more than Satan, that's when you know that the Lord came and rescued you. The gospel is too powerful to not transform you. Jesus is too mighty not to change you. The Holy Spirit who comes at the moment of regeneration is too holy to abandon you in a sinful lifestyle. And the Father is too caring to leave you in your sins. So, every Christian has a testimony. To declare about the power of the gospel in their lives. At the moment of our regeneration, new birth, we are transferred. No longer union with Adam, but union with Christ. We are made, according to Paul, a new creation. No Christian, no man, has the power to remain in a life that's marked by sinfulness. And membership in Satan's family. Let, let me tell you, that's very important. No man is more powerful than the gospel of Christ. When the gospel comes, it destroys you and kills you and makes you a new person. Amen? It's impossible to meet Jesus, to experience His saving power and remain the same. So the Christian testimony is this legal declaration. I can testify. I have experienced. And you all here have seen the transformation in my life through my words and my works. So why are we talking about that? Because we are facing right now in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's own testimony. 
And that's important because in 1 Timothy, that's crucial, in 1 Timothy 1, 15-17, Paul says that his salvation is an example. Look at that. Paul's salvation is an example to all other Christians what salvation is like. Huh. He says, The saints trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Oh, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. None of us here, nobody here was saved with the same situation that Paul was saved, right? Nobody here was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus came and he spoke in Hebrew. Saul, Saul, Tom, Tom, why are you persecuting me? No, 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 no. But there is one thing that's a pattern for everyone of his salvation. Is that when the gospel comes, it's by grace, it's by mercy alone. There is nothing that we did. It's all about His mercy, His power. And also there is a transformation of life. That's why Paul says that's a pattern for every single person. Do you know if you're saved? Look at my life. That's the pattern. There was a life before Christ. There is a moment of salvation. Regeneration, conversion, and then there is the life afterwards. That's what Paul is saying here. So what we have in Philippians 3, now starting verse 4 through 7, is Paul's own testimony. And as we come to Philippians, I just want to remind you very quickly, that's a beautiful letter. It's a, one, of the, one of Paul's most precious letters. And he's writing to this church that he has a very intimate relationship and Paul and the Philippians, they have this joyful partnership in the advancement of the gospel. And Paul, he doesn't know if he's going to die, if he's going to remain alive. So he's writing as a farewell and preparing that church for whatever God brings in the near future. And he sees that there are some threats to that partnership in the advancement of the gospel. And there are internal threats and there are external threats. So Paul has been addressing earlier the internal problems of disunity, lack of humility. And now he's going back to address another problem that might be affecting, hindering, hindering the advancement of the gospel, and that is Paul's teachers. Paul can, as a good shepherd, he can smell the dogs walking outside the church. Just like happened in Corinth, just like happened in Galatia, and he knows that they're coming to Philippi. So now, starting in verse 2, Paul starts addressing this threat, this problem. And as we come to verse 4, there are two major outlines. One is the outline of the whole section, and we can def outline as Paul's life before conversion, Paul's life at conversion, and then Paul's life after conversion, before, at, and after. But that's not the outline I'm going to be following today. Today, we are going to be looking at a different one. We're going to be looking at Paul's life before conversion, and then we're going to look at Paul's challenge, Paul's confidence in his pedigree, and then Paul's confidence in his performance. And then we're going to move to verse 7 and look at Paul's life at conversion. And then next Lord day, we move on to life after conversion. Amen? Okay, so, I'm just give you a quick review, and that's the, the thing with expository preaching. We've got to always go back to what comes before, to refresh our minds, make sure we're not taking text out of context. And remember, starting verse 2, Paul he shifts gears here and becomes even shocking. We're not expecting that. This language of affection, emotion, love, joy, and so the beware. Watch out for the dogs, the mutilators, the evildoers. And it's Paul getting the attention of that church. Because he knows that there are 
the Judaizers. Do you remember the Judaizers? They're, they profess to be Christians. They claim to be Christians. They claim to believe in Christ alone, faith alone. But actually they would say, but, but there are some requirements in order to fully please God. There are some works you must do. And that is to put the yoke of the Mosaic Law over your shoulders. As if Jesus had not taken the yoke. You need to put the yoke once again of the Mosaic Law and obey the law in order for you to be accepted into the table of Abraham and not be like a dog outside. Like the Gentiles. And then Paul confronts them. And he says, hey, that's actually a perversion of the gospel. So in verse 3 he says why he's being so aggressive. And we see in verse 3, for we, because we are the circumcision. Christians, they have received the internal surgery in the innermost part, the most private part, that's the heart. Now it's the knife of Moses, but it's the sword of the Spirit. Regeneration. And he says, we are the true people of God who serve, who worship by the Spirit, who boast, who glory, not in the Mosaic Law, but in Christ. And then finally, we didn't get there last Lord's Day, and here's the last aspect of the true Christian. He says, and put no confidence in the flesh. What is to put confidence in the flesh? To believe that your works, the things that you do with your hands, can attain a place, a position before God of peace, shalom, righteousness. As if by obeying some laws, they will be able to acquire a place before the Holy God. So that's very important because Paul here contrasts confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot have one foot upon your works and one foot upon Christ and say, oh, I'm, I'm safe here. No, 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 no. Both feet must be placed upon Christ. So, verse 4, here's Paul. And, and no, notice the, the connection with verse 3 by talking about confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And notice the shift. There is a change from the we to what? I. Because Paul now placed himself as a pattern, as an example to them. So Paul now is going to say, okay, okay. They want to bring their works. They want to bring their resume Are you all ready for my resume? Children, what is a resume? Or younger, older ones, what is a resume? Yes, when you're applying for a job, you put all your achievements, all the things you have done to show how impressive you are compared to other people so they can hire you. And Paul now, he says, do you want to see my fleshly resume? If you think these guys are impressive, let me show you something. Paul loved a fight. He loved a theological fight. So now he's going to bring his resume according to the flesh. And you can know that some people, some of these false teachers were arguing, saying, this Paul... He's a good teacher, but you know what the problem with him is that he doesn't have these credentials. That's why he's never talking about circumcision, food laws, the Sabbath. That's why. It's just because he doesn't have this pedigree. He doesn't have this privilege. That's why he doesn't talk about that. So Paul says, here, let me, let me talk about something. I usually don't talk about these things, but let me, let, let me talk about my past. They would say that Paul, 
Remember the story of the fox that was trying to reach for the grapes, and the fox cannot reach for the grapes, and then what does the fox say? Oh, those grapes are sour anyways. And that's what they're talking about Paul. He's just a sour loser. He's just, ah, that's... Since he cannot have these things, that's why he's just saying that nobody should have them. So Paul confronts them by giving his own example. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And it's true. Paul played in a different league. These people here, junior high, trying to play with professionals. And the difference is gigantic. You know, I remember playing soccer in Brazil, and you think you're pretty good. I was a goalie for a while, until I had a friend of mine, his brother was professional goalie. Until I saw that guy playing close to us. That's a whole other game. And he was not even professional in a, in a major soccer team. He was a professional But the difference is just gigantic. And that's exactly Paul here. The difference is gigantic between him and these Judaizers. It's as if Paul said, here, give me their sermon notes. And I'll preach a much better sermon than they do. That's what Paul is doing here. And his resume, let me see here. Yes, he gives seven, seven Aspects that he could boast in the flesh. And it's divided in two groups. You have the pedigree. That's what he received by, from inheritance. And then you have his performance. So you have circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then you have in the center, you can just see a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he moves on to his achievements, his performance. So let's see the first one. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And by the way, they have been telling other churches that the man must be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. And in Greek, he has two words, circumcision, and it's one word, eighth day. Huh. Compare these guys with me. According to the law, the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, and then in Leviticus chapter 12. So you have the Abrahamic, Mosaic law commanding the circumcision to be on the eighth day. And Paul guarantees that these guys here, their parents did not follow that strict, the law. And he says, I'm no proselyte. What is a proselyte? Proselyte was the one who joined the Jewish religion afterwards. And that's what Paul is saying here. So Paul is showing that by, since from his infancy, he had, by, he had been marked with the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and in accordance with the Mosaic law. There is a beautiful picture of a new creation. A new creation that would come through the seed, the man's seed, that would crush the work of Satan and renew, make... God's people into a new creation. That's what the eighth day is. It's just, remember the, the Jewish way of system was the first day. That's when God begins creation. Seventh day, He rests. The eighth day, through all the scriptures, becomes as a day of new creation. So if you read the, the, the laws, and when it's time for for a woman, for example, to show herself as being purified, as being back, or a man to be back into society is on the eighth day. Meaning, he's ready, he's a new creation now, he has been purified. And that's all we see here. That's why Jesus was raised when? After the Sabbath. That's the first day or the eighth day. It means the same thing. And that's why in Christ we have a new creation. So, Paul gives his first one. And then he says, of the people of Israel. He doesn't call himself a Jew, but an Israelite. Meaning, the blood of Israel, the blood of Jacob, runs right here. I'm no proselyte. I'm an Israelite. 
And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin, though small, was very important. Benjamin is the only son of Jacob to be born in the promised land. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, when you have the division between the northern and the southern kingdom, Benjamin joins with the southern kingdom, with Judah. The first king of Israel comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And most scholars believe that that's why Paul's Hebrew name is what? Saul. To honor the first one. And then he says to culminate a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's the Hebraic superlative. You have the song of songs. You have Lord of lords. You have the holy of holies. And Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. When you get all the other Hebrew boys around me, they're nothing compared to me. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Implies that he had Hebrew parents. Implies that he spoke Hebrew language. Remember that Jesus, when Jesus appears to Paul, he speaks in Hebrew to him the first time, according to Acts 26. His education was fully Hebraic. So, Paul, though born in the diaspora in Tarsus, was raised strictly under Hebrew influence. And when he was a little boy, his parents took him to Jerusalem to study under whom? The great rabbi Gamaliel. So, he was protected by the walls of Jewish tradition. So, just with his pedigree, just with his, what he inherited from his parents... Paul shows here that these dogs, yapping, yapping, are nothing compared to him. He puts them to shame. But that's not enough. So Paul moves to his performance. If it's not enough, what I inherited from my parents, and that's very important, even though we live in a very individualistic society, that's all about what I have achieved Ancient people and many other people understand the importance of life in community. You inherit things, some privileges. So now he moves on to he, what his hands have accomplished. So he says, as to the law, what? A Pharisee. Not every Jew was a Pharisee. Because not every Jew was accepted as a Pharisee. And we, when we think about Pharisee, do we think positively or negatively? Yes, and rightly so, because of all these caving pronouncements of Jesus towards the Pharisees. But here, Paul is not using it as negative, but as positive. Do you know why? Because the Pharisees were the most conservative of the Jews. That's why he says, as to the law... And the law here, I don't think it's just the, the legislation under the Mosaic Covenant, but the law as the whole Old Testament, the whole Torah. As to the law, as to the Scriptures, a Pharisee. Because remember the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the liberals. They did not believe in inspiration. They did not believe in the angels. They did not believe in the sanctity of marriage. Not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were... The most orthodox of the orthodox. And that's what Paul is saying here. And then he says, Behold the escalation here. Not only a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Because not every Pharisee went to that extreme, was not that zealous to persecute the church. And brothers and sisters, that's important to notice here and, and, and look at this. Because Paul is not counting that as something negative in his resume. It's actually something very positive. Behold my zeal. I became a persecutor of the church. Not every, not every Jew, not every Pharisee had the privilege of becoming an instrument of God in purifying the land of all those blasphemers. A persecutor of the church. 
Persecuting the church was seen as a righteous and holy duty by the Pharisees and the other Jews. So Paul often, he often talks about this. And it's especially in context that he's showing, he's fighting against these Judaizers who, who say, we are very zealous for the law of God. Paul is not that zealous. Paul doesn't have that passion for the Mosaic tradition. And Paul talks about the persecution in the context of, look at my zeal. You want to talk about zeal for the law? Look at my zeal. I persecuted the church. So, for example, in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then he acts. That's when Saul first appears. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they're all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, except the apostles. Devote men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Look at the contrast. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look at the contrast. So here, the first time we hear about Saul, he's a young man, probably in his late teens. And he's standing there. He was a very well-known student of Gamaliel. They knew him. And he's standing there as a young man as the other Jewish men are throwing their garments at his feet to stone Stephen in order for their garments to not get blood from all that stoning. So they put at Saul's feet as he's watching over their garments to not be contaminated with Stephen's blood. And he thinks that's wonderful. Look at the contrast. Godly men bearing Stephen, crying with mourning. And then you have Saul, like a wild beast, trying to bury the church. In Acts 9, we read... But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them and bound to Jerusalem. Look at the word still. Still. Connecting him to the stoning of Stephen. Acts 26, verse 11. We get more of Paul. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The air that he was breathing was the air of hate, cruelty against Christians. We have this... Uh, what I call the sentimental hermeneutics or the emotional hermeneutics is when you try to interpret the Scriptures with feelings instead of letting the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. So, for example, we come to the book of Esther and then what do we do? Oh, she has to be a nice girl. Right? Even though she's disobeying completely the Lord, you say, oh, but she has to be a nice girl. She's in the Bible. Or Jesus at the cross, and we hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, we, and right there, we need to create this emotional aspect of how the Father turned His face away. And we have no support biblically to that. Actually, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, the psalmist says that God's not abandoning Him. And there's vindication. And the same we do here. We, we like to apply the sentimental hermeneutics. And we say, oh, the death of Stephen softened 
Paul's heart. I'm pretty sure that as he watched Paul, Stephen being stoned, that had to have an effect upon him. And seeing Stephen say, Oh, forgive them, Lord. He had to have a, a something in Paul's heart. That's completely, completely the opposite of the Scriptures. It actually creates more anger. Who is this blasphemer now telling his Lord to forgive me for doing what the Bible commands me to do? The law commands me to purify the land. So don't swallow the idea that the death of Stephen softened Paul's heart. There's absolutely nothing in the Scriptures about that. It's the completely opposite. The death of Stephen was seen by Paul as a great act of obedience and zeal to the holiness of God in the land. We need to purify the land of these blasphemers. And his hate increases. One scholar says, Both Paul and Luke interpret his conversion as an unconditioned act of God's mercy to which Paul brought no preparation but his sins. All attempts to find a psychological basis for that conversion shatter against this foundational element of the New Testament witness. Neither anxiety over his guilt nor distress over the condition of his nation prepared him for his encounter with the risen Christ. Paul saw himself as a holy instrument of the holy God purifying the holy land. So when he says, as to zeal a persecutor, he's not saying, oh, look at how bad it is in my resume. No, I was God's holy instrument in purifying the land. That's how I saw myself. And that's how others saw me. And brings to mind the Old Testament. Simeon and Levi, Genesis 34, when they killed the men who abused their sister. About Pineas or Phineas, when he kills with a spear the man who was committing immorality in the camp. How about Elijah, who killed the prophets of Baal? How about the Maccabeans, who strive to purify the land? So that's, that's the lineage of Paul. That's where he places himself. So he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And that's amazing. Because the word church, ecclesia, is used in the Old Testament for whom? Israel. For the assembly of Israel. And now he applies that to God's people under the new covenant. And then lastly he says, as to righteousness under the law. Blameless. And he's not being sarcastic. He's not being ironic. He's being realistic. I was blameless. Just like Noah. Just like Abraham. You read the psalmist. And you see the psalmist saying how he's blameless. They were blameless. Why? Because they would offer a blameless sacrifice on their place. There was an aspect that provided that blameless through the sacrifice. And that's how Paul sees himself. So we see that Paul never went through a life crisis of guilt. Actually, he was certain that everything he was doing was pleasing the Lord. And he shows how no one can stand against him when it comes to confidence in the flesh. He's a beast. He is a beast. No one can stand toe-to-toe with this guy. And it's amazing to contrast his conversion with Luther. Luther went through a crisis. God brought him through a crisis in order to bring regeneration. Not Paul. Gerald Hawthorne, he says, This statement by Paul leaves no place for, for the more modern view deduced from Romans 7 that before his conversion, Paul was a Jew who had an, an uneasy conscience over the stoning of Stephen. 
and a growing dissatisfaction with his religion. No, 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 no. In every way, he considered himself to be a moral Jew. If you got the, the Hebrew magazines in the days of Paul, you'd see the picture of Paul there. He is a top model. He is the boy that all the moms were hoping that their daughters would be dating and marrying that man. He was the example. So he says, In every way he considered himself to be a model Jew, quite satisfied with himself. And here is very important. Until he met the living Christ. Until he met the living Christ. And then everything changes. So that's why we have verse 7. But, the but, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And now Paul pictures himself as an accountant with his ledger. And he, had the two, he has the two callings. Prophets, gains, liability, losses. And now he's putting there, it's all gains, all profits. Until the day that Jesus showed up. As soon as Jesus showed up, he realized that all that he was longing for, all that he was working for, all that he was expecting was actually in Jesus Christ. So he gets all those things and he throws to the liability, to the lost column. That's what Paul is painting right here. I counted... The word implies a, a serious, sobering, reasonable assessment and evaluation. And that how it must be. That's why you have the parable of the soils. You have those people who profess to be a Christian. They never thought about the implication of taking up the cross and following a crucified Savior. Paul knew very well. From the moment that the Lord showed up, he told him, You will be my instrument of suffering. To take the gospel to the Gentiles. So every time a person has an encounter with the risen Christ, every time a person is encountered by Christ, there is, there is a clash that provokes a reevaluation of your whole life. There is no way. He's way too powerful to meet with you and leave you in your own lifestyle. Every time he comes to meet with the ones whom he chose to meet, it's a drastic meeting. So Paul met with him, and then all his gains in the plural, actually in the Greek is in the plural, all my gains, all my profits, now he counts as zemia, loss. This word in this form is used also in Acts. And remember when Paul is about to get into the ship and he tells those people, we're about to get into a shipwreck, the storm is coming. And we're going to have, we have now to throw away all this cargo. It's the loss. All those things that were profit now become lost because they need to throw the cargo into the sea in order to avoid the shipwreck. That's the same word here. And you see how Paul shows that repentance, repentance is a transformation in identity. I used to think one way, now I think another way. I used to see as gains, as gains. And then at the moment of conversion, I counted all those things as loss. But here is why. And that's important. Why? What is the reason behind? The ESV says, for the sake. I prefer the NASB that says because. The preposition here is explaining. It's not that Christ is gaining something. Because if I say, alright, I'll do that for Ruth's sake. Meaning, I'm trying to help Ruth. So when Paul says, for Christ's sake, it's not that in order to help Christ with something. That's why I think because is a better translation. Because of Christ. 
because of Jesus. Paul, encountering the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, understanding there that He was the Christ, the Messiah, whom He had longed for and had worked for, gladly gave up all His former advantages to gain this one person. That was the impact of Christ upon His life. That was the impact of Christ upon my life and your life if you are a Christian. From that moment on, when Christ shows up, and here is this man who believes himself to be blameless before God, zealous to purify the land, believing, believing he's doing a good work in killing these Christians, in arresting these Christians. If Christ was alive, you have no doubt that Paul would do the same thing towards Christ. And Jesus shows up. And everything changes. Here's a man who is longing. He's breathing threats. Hate. And as soon as he meets Jesus, everything changes. From that moment on, Paul gains become a huge loss. No, now Paul can see what he was longing for. The great treasure that he was looking for. Fred Craig, he says, that's important. He says, Paul does not toss away junk to gain Christ. He tosses away that which was of tremendous value to him. Therein lies the extraordinary impact of his testimony and the high commendation of faith in Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing here remotely akin to the popular type of testimony that catalogs all the sins, frustrations, empty ambitions, soiled relationships, and foul habits that were tossed in the garbage can at conversion. Sincere as those may be, such accounts say in fact that the worth of Christ is greater than the worst in one's life. Hmm. What Paul is saying is that Christ surpasses everything of worth to me. You know what I hear, sadly? I hear often some Christians who were raised in a godly home by godly parents saying, well, I don't have a, an exciting testimony. Oh, my testimony is boring. My testimony is not as cool. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? First of all, there is no testimony that's not exciting. We all deserve hell. And now you want to compare yourself to the one who was arrested for drug dealing, murdering, the lady who committed ten abortions. And you think that's the cool, that you want to have that life. For me, it's a greater testimony for a person to say, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents loved the Lord. My parents brought us in the admonition and fear of the Lord since we were little kids. And yet, when I met Jesus, I noticed that all those things could not provide a place for me in heaven. For me, that's much greater than someone like me telling all the garbage of my past. That's simple. When you're in the garbage, everything is better than garbage. So don't ever, don't ever say that you don't have a cool testimony. Every testimony is powerful. And for me, it's even more powerful because that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Talk about goodness. Look at me. And he puts to shame so many homeschoolers here and in the Christian circle that think that they're good. He's not saying, look at how bad I was. Look at how good I was. And when I met Jesus, all that goodness, I saw there was nothing. Nothing to bring me to the heavenly place. That's what Paul is doing here. So don't ever, don't ever, I don't ever want to hear here in this church, I have a boring testimony. Oh, my testimony is not exciting. For me, it's a greater miracle. Just, that's what Jesus says, how, how hard 
It is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because He has everything. That's why it becomes even more beautiful when someone who is grounded in self-righteousness because of all the good things that they have actually recognize that all those righteousness are just like filthy rags. So have you met this Jesus? Have you met this Jesus? And there was a clash, there was a crash where there was this change of perspective where all the gains became lost. See, we might say, I'm oh, that's hard. I'm not like Paul. I'm not boasting about my Hebrew heritage. Yeah, we might not boast about our Hebrew heritage, but here in America, we have things that we have confidence in the flesh. As to nationality, I'm an American. I'm no Mexican. I'm no Brazilian. I'm no Argentine. Born in America. Texas. The real deal. Therefore, I'm a Christian, right? Because that's a, a Christian nation. I have to be a Christian. I'm an American. As to morality, I have never been arrested. No heinous sin, no adultery, no fornication, no drugs. As to ancestry, Christian parents, Christian grandparents, Christian great-grandparents. Well, I can trace my line to Jonathan Edwards. As to party affiliation, a Republican of the Republicans. As to orthodoxy, reformed. As to zeal, an apologist. A debater. Always reading the reformed writings. Do you know the Institutes of Calvin? I have read ten times. Family devotions every day. As to education. Homeschool. Godless home in the U.S., followed by Christian university, never infected with public school indoctrination. As to finances, all that I have, I bought my own cash, no debt. As to family, five children, ten children, and a stay-at-home wife. As to religious background, baptized when I was seven years old have been church since then. And suddenly, these things that are not bad at all become evil. They become evil because we start using those things as grounds for acceptance before God. And the things that are good, the things that we work hard for, actually become heavy weights that sink us down into hell. Because we think that those things have to provide a place for me in heaven. So we have a bunch of young people here. Young men, young women. You have been raised in a home, in a home where your parents love you. In a home where the, your parents love the Lord. You have been raised, surrounded by Christian teaching. A healthy church. You have not been contaminated by perversion. And if you think that these things will lead you to heaven, you are completely wrong. You are completely wrong. These things will actually provide a greater judgment in hell. Because for whom much is given, much is required. So embrace Jesus. Be thankful for these things, but know that all these things can never, can never justify you before a holy God. It's only the garments of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And you have older people here. You have been serving the Lord for years. You have been in church for years. Positions in the church. And yet, you think that these things are going to provide a place for you? Unless you embrace Christ, unless you rely on Christ, unless you say, Amen, Christ is my righteousness, all those things are lost. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Showing us 
what a true testimony of the Christian life is like. When I survey the wondrous cross where the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain, I, uh, I count as loss. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your care. We thank You that You have provided the righteousness that we need. We thank You for saving us, rescuing us from ourselves, from our sins. And Lord, there are those here who are still counting as gain things that will drag them to hell. I pray that You would have mercy on them, Lord. Have mercy on them. Open their eyes, just like You opened Paul's eyes, just like You opened our eyes here who are saved, to see the beauty of Christ. Help us. Help this church to be a church that has the same testimony of the power of Christ, of the glory of Jesus. So help us. Rescue us from ourselves. To You be the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.